independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. We're at a time in the world where we are barely surviving. That's why land ownership is a really important tactic and taking back our power, ensuring our survival so that we can get to a place where we can transcend these systems. So we, you know, this parallel of fighting the bad while we build the new, like th these have to happen simultaneously. And land ownership, because of its deep connection to well-being, has to be a strategy in that. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Shakira Tyler, a returning generation farmer, educator, and organizer who engages in Black agrarianism, agroecology, food sovereignty, and environmental justice as commitments of abolition and decolonization. She serves as board president at the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, board member of the Detroit People's Food Co-op, co-founder of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, and a member of the Black Dirt Farm Collective. I always start with the colonial era because we can't talk about present day injustices without talking about the atrocious beginnings that the colonization has created for what we experience today through wealth, like gross wealth inequities and terrorist violence against people of color and so on and so on. So the present doctrine of discovery in 1455, the 15th century is, is a common starting place for me because that's when we bring in the theft of land or the intentional calculation of what it would mean to steal land from people that have been there sorting the land for, for centuries prior to that beginning. And so this, this present doctrine of discovery that was led by the Spanish and the, and the British that came together as this like aggregated colonization of various European countries and then the transatlantic slave trade or enslavement trade from the 16th century to the 19th century. And some people would, would consider 1619 as the dawn of enslavement here in the United States or here on Turtle Island. The 1862 Homestead Acts, which basically provided massive welfare subsidies through land to white settlers. And some stats will say that white settlers received around 250 million acres of fertile prime land with abundant quote unquote natural resources embedded in those particular places. And the Homestead Acts, which basically granted land to white settlers, which was land stolen from indigenous peoples, is the foundation of why there are such gross wealth disparities through land today, right? Like 98% of the acres owned here on Turtle Island are owned by white folks. 
And that's agricultural land, just as a clarification. And then 1865, special field order 15, which was the false promise by the government to grant 40 acres and a mule that was supposed to be granted to newly emancipated African peoples from enslavement. And we know that that was short-lived. Only a few thousand Africans were actually able to hold on to those acres that were granted through that program. Some still have it in their families today, and many, 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 many of us do not. And this is why still in 2022, we are still requesting some kind of reparations, 40 acres and a mule as an example, for the thousands of years that we worked this land without any kind of benefit and any kind of reparations that were paid to us at all. 1865, again, which again was a big year, the Black Codes. Convict leasing began at that time, which was a way to sort of sustain the system of enslavement through carcerality or or imprisonment, the system of sharecropping from 1865 through the 1940s, and then the Freedmen's Bureau that was created by the federal government in 1865, which attempted to govern the land distribution to African peoples through various mediums. And while it did produce some kind of a moderate benefit for newly emancipated Africans to receive land. It actually failed as an approach to create equity, for lack of a better term, within the system by granting African people's land because we were never in in control of that process. The government completely controlled the land distribution process and the land distribution process was highly inequitable. Again, we, in 1865, we barely received any government subsidies of land, and that extended through the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, where we had to actually purchase land while white settlers continued to get free land or or land grants through various federal efforts and state efforts. Let's see, Jim Crow laws from the early 1880s through 1965 the present theft of Black-owned land, which, again, I talked about, we are still experiencing that today. Air property exploitation, which really started, I guess, around the beginning of the 20th century. Air property is essentially land that has rolled over to the children of those that have passed on. And the air property exploitation process was one of the key ways that Black land has been stolen over decades when there wasn't a will in place or there wasn't kind of, there wasn't any kind of documents or a paper trail that seeded or explicitly directed the land to any beneficiaries or heirs after the person that owned it transitioned. The system at B, federal, state, whoever, the white supremacist system, to be more explicit, chose to use that as a way to take the land from these Black families. And again, this is still happening today. The Pickford versus Glickman class action lawsuit, which was at the time the largest federal class action lawsuit in U.S. history. This was a lawsuit that Black farmers filed against the USDA for decades of discrimination within federal farm loan programs. The redlining housing practice from the early 1900s through the late 1900s, uh, really into the early 2000s. And really through today, I mean, you can, there are various waves of redlining that we even see through today. The gentrification that's ongoing that started maybe around the 1950s through today that's escalating in various metropolitan areas around the country, Detroit being one of them. And the mass incarceration that started with the convict leasing system that proliferated through sharecropping and and pinage and, and other land-based terrorist systems against Black people. Mass incarceration, of which Black people are one of the more dominant victims of, of this white supremacist system, 
is a way to control and ensure that people of color and particularly black people remain within enslavement conditions to continue to produce wealth for this country at no benefit to us. Yeah, I mean, that was such an incredible wealth of information on the historical timeline. And I know we could focus entire conversations just on any one of these events, but really appreciate this overview. And I think it really helps to illustrate how the present racial injustice in farming came to be. And overall, we know that Black farmland ownership peaked around 1910, I believe, at 16 to 19 million acres. And it's decreased since then to less than 3 million acres today. And we also know that Black farmers represent just over 1% of all U.S. farmers. So this just, again, illustrates the incredible challenges that Black farmers have faced over the past centuries into the present day. And you've noted how the civil rights movement is often touted as a significant period of political, economical, and overall societal advancement for Black communities. Yet this broad stroke of an assessment leaves out some crucial details in terms of what this time was like for Black farmers. And this seems really important to weave into the picture as well. So what role did Black farmers play in support of the civil rights movement? And at the same time, what hardships in regards to land stewardship and access were they facing? We often forget that that Black farmers were the foundation of the civil rights movement. Actually, a lot of Black agrarian scholars and organizers and even some some policy advocates that have been doing this work for a long time would say that there would be no civil rights movement if it wasn't for Black farmers. Because at the time, Black farmers were, were battling rapidly declining land loss during the civil rights era, which was motivated by various federal legislations and formal and informal efforts that were systemically strategically and and intentionally dislocating, dispossessing, displacing Black people from rural and urban land spaces, generally speaking, right? And so this rapidly declining land loss during the civil rights era, which is usually considered to be a significant period of political, economical, and overall societal advancement for Black communities is sort of an ironic situation because Black farmers continue to lose land rapidly during this time, while they also bolstered the civil rights movement by using their land to bail activists out of jail, providing security, housing, and food for traveling activists such as the Freedom Riders. And there are many, many other examples of how Black farmers have really been the fuel of the civil rights movement by providing safe havens for gatherings on their farms, because without land and without the economic power that came with land ownership at that time, many of the wins that were achieved during that historical period couldn't have been achieved if it wasn't for the economic power through wealth and land ownership of Black farmers, the political clout that that land ownership created for Black farmers, and, and you know, just many other factors. And so it's always ironic to bring up or to illuminate how Black farmers were, I mean, as a population, as a community, we're losing enormous amounts of land just on a very general level while still feeding and bolstering this massive civil rights movement that was inspiring other movements around the globe. So a lot can be gathered from the understanding of Black agrarian movements fighting for economic and political autonomy through land ownership and environmental justice movements generally, like fighting for livable communities through community control of land, among other other tactics. And this is why we always say that Black movements generally have a lot of intersections, like this, the civil rights movement heavily intersects with the Black power movement, the Black arts movement, and now the movement for Black lives that has emerged and, you know, overall the environmental justice movements that that started with Black rural and urban communities in the mid-20th century. So there, this intersection of, of, of movement building among and across the Black communities is just a, a really beautiful thing to illuminate because we often forget that there were no, there were very few silos 
at that time. Like everyone worked together, like the housing justice folks worked together with the education justice folks and the education justice worked together with environmental justice, right? Like that's what created such dynamic unity and assured the wins that were gained during the civil rights movement because everyone was working together in a more unified fashion than we are today. And so we we really need to take up those lessons in more profound ways so that we can start to attain the wins or continue to attain the wins that were spurred at that time. Absolutely. And you've also talked about how the Black community has been integral to trailblazing, growing food within cities during a time when agriculture and growing food maybe were understood predominantly as activities for the countryside. So can you shine a light on this for us, perhaps highlighting Detroit more specifically, as it's often known as a mecca for urban agriculture, as well as how your work with the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund have helped to lead the reclamation of Black agrarianism in the city? I'm going to start with the Great Migrations. And I'm, I'm intentional about saying the Great Migrations because it was plural in nature and not singular. The Great Migrations happened over a series of decades, starting around the 1910s to the 1970s. And during this time, it's usually, well, it was usually considered the second industrial revolution. Millions of Black people migrated heavily to the urban North and West to escape the white terrorism of the rural and urban South. And of course, employment in the North through factory jobs and other means provided opportunities for thousands of Southern Black people to escape Jim Crow and racial oppression and lynchings and so on. But it's important to emphasize how we were running from the terrorism that governed the land at that time. And we weren't just leaving the land in the South to seek money in the North, which is often the whitewash narrative. So in, in order to correct that and, and to ground a more accurate historical depiction, we need to understand that it was it was the white terrorism, the white supremacist terrorism that in part caused a lot of the great migrations over many decades during the 20th century. So many Southern Black migrants followed the rail lines and settled in major cities that included Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Oakland, many of these cities that are no, that are not in the South. And while they left the land in the South, the agricultural knowledge used to build thriving Black communities and one of the quintessential tools in building the agricultural industry of the U.S. was, was brought with them to the northern cities. And so while we may have left the land, we brought the knowledge and that agrarian brilliance with us because we didn't have a choice. We had to survive. Like this knowledge was often a midwife of sorts for us to survive in unfamiliar areas, unfamiliar climates, just unfamiliar, like racialized geographies that we were forced into arguably forced into, depending on who you ask. And so Black people have been growing in cities of the North prior to the Victory Gardens in response to World War II during the 1940s. Like we were growing in cities because that's how we fed our families. Even when there were grocery stores, supermarkets emerging at the time in bustling metro areas, sometimes we didn't have access to those mainstream food sources. And so we always had to grow to, to sustain our families and our communities. Like we've always been growing on little pieces of land that we could find, whether it was on our windowsills or our backyards, our front lars, vacant lots at the end of our blocks, little pieces of countryside land that we purchased while we were still living in the city, like all kinds of situations. We utilized pieces of land that we could attain in various ways to grow our own for personal consumption and entrepreneurship means because we had to survive. We had to continue to keep our our stories alive through the land and through the food that we ate and the food that we use as conduits to our ancestors and so on. And so there's a lot wrapped up in what is now considered to be urban agriculture. Like we've been doing this even prior to it having a name. 
urban agriculture, food justice, food sovereignty, like we've been doing it because this is what spiritually, physically, culturally necessitated us to do that. And Detroit has been such a dynamic example of what food justice and food sovereignty that is led by Black people could be, right? Like, so so Detroit is a majority Black city, right? Like 83%, I think at, at the moment, 83% of the population is Black. So if I'm not mistaken, that makes Detroit the Blackest city in the country. Mm-hmm. And it is only right that Black people are in leadership of developing equitable food systems here in, here in this particular area because we are the most affected by the injustices and the inequities around food and land and, and so on. And so Detroit, as this really unique city with enormous amounts of vacant land, I think it's about 30% of the land here is vacant, which is unheard of for, for a um, major city. And it's given us the opportunity to grow food and and just grow agricultural businesses, agricultural enterprises on multiple levels in ways that other cities may not have the opportunity to do because of land availability, right? And so the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has been working to build self-determination through urban agriculture and through the reclamation of Black food history and stories and and so on, because this is what we have to do to sustain ourselves spiritually, physically, economically, politically, and and so on. And the Detroit Black Pharma Land Fund, going back to the the 30%, and that's approximately 5,000 acres of vacant land available in the city. And when I say available, I mean, it, it may be owned by the Detroit Land Bank Authority, or it may be owned by a private investor of sorts. Many of them are white, wealthy people that don't live here. And so when I when I say available, I don't mean that it's just lying idle and just waiting for someone to purchase it, right? Like there's a, there's a very calculated process to attain that land, specifically to own the land, right? But the Black Farmer Land Fund has been working with Black growers in the city to purchase these pieces of land that many have been growing on without owning them. And so what people would call guerrilla gardening or occupying the land, because we don't, we've never really had the means to own these pieces of land while we continue to grow on the land, to feed ourselves and our communities and to clean up the blight and to beautify our neighborhoods, to cleanse the soil and the air and the water from contaminants that make our bodies sick, like all of these motivations have have driven the work of the Detroit Black Pharma Land Fund. And we were created as, as a mechanism to help Black growers navigate the gruesome bureaucracy of, of land purchasing here in Detroit. And I actually have to lift up Tafira Rushdan, who is a co-director at Keep Growing Detroit. And she, knowing that Black people, of course, because of racialized capitalism and all of the intersecting systems with white supremacy, create these systems that make it harder for us to attain land and to attain other resources to build thriving farm businesses. She was really the originator of of this process and brought people together so that we can start this institution as a coalition of three longstanding urban agriculture organizations in the city. So Keep Growing Detroit is one of them where she currently serves as co-director. And the others, as I mentioned before, are the Detroit Black Farmer Land or the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which is actually soon to be the Detroit Black Community Food Sovereignty Network, illuminating the difference between food security and food sovereignty, which we can get into later. And then the other, the third organization in the coalition is Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, led by Mama Jerry Hebron. And so these three organizations are three longstanding, highly respected, highly dynamic, Black-led organizations in the city that is doing food justice and food sovereignty work with minimal resources, like without 
without a lot of the resources that predominantly white or all white organizations do as as they claim to be doing the work of the people. So with greater acknowledgement of how land has historically been taken away from or denied access to for various groups of people who have stewarded and contributed to the richness of that land, there have been more conversations about repatriation, which refers to the return of land to someone, though with the roots of that word, perhaps more specifically returning land to their forefathers. I know that you've been keen to center on rematriation instead, which, as you note, refashions the conditions and standards standards that have constructed relationships produced for us and in which we sometimes remain complicit to survive within the violent expansions of European colonialism. Imperatively, it helps to reimagine life beyond the settler state, honoring the ongoing building towards abolitionist and decolonial futures, end quote. I would appreciate it if you could share more about the significance of the reframe to rematriation and also how you've contended with working within the confines of a system that upholds the idea and domination-based relationality of private land ownership, especially when seeking to maintain and reestablish food sovereignty, which does necessitate land ownership in this system. And yeah, to this point, I wonder if there are alternative models practiced by the various groups that you talked about, alternative models of relating to community, to collectivity, and to the land that could offer some inspirations for our listeners here. To rematriate, to me, means to seek out and honor the motherlode in a settler colonial state that exploited Black and Indigenous laborers on indigenously stolen land to build the U.S. empire before us. And rematriation inevitably, I think, is a, is a feminist orientation that illuminates the mutual accountability, the relationality, the kinship that's involved in actively working to restore responsibilities to the land and building toward abolitionist and decolonial futures. So rematriation overall is like the discursive set of relationships that are practically situated within radical struggles that start and end with the land. And it illuminates how communities have to begin to work across these false divides like rural, urban, racial, ethnic divides, for example, these silos that movements work around, like religious faith divides, education, and so on and so on. Like if we don't find a way to first heal our relationships with the land in ways that illuminate not our rights to the land, not our ownership over the land, but our roles as stewards, I think, and like our ancestral roles as stewards of the land, ensuring that that the land has what she needs so that she can continue to feed us while we feed her. Like that reciprocal relationship is really important. And so, and I'm trying not to sound too romanticized and cliche, but we have to start with a spiritual grounding of our relationships with the land that are really completely opposite to this whole mindset of of land ownership that retreats back to European feudalism, you know, various, various centuries ago. So again, we have to get to the root of it all. Angela Davis talks about revolutionary change being a radical act that that draws from the root, that dislocates something from the root of it. And a lot of movement building, whether it's food or land oriented or both or something beyond that can sometimes be more symptomatic, right? Like we're putting band-aids on these wounds without getting to the root of why the wound is there in the first place. And that's where colonialism and heteropatriarchy and imperialism, like all of these interconnecting systems that have created what we see before us in the world today And a lot of pulling from the root, like the radical act of getting to the root of all of these issues starts and ends with land. And this is why rematriation is so important because it it connotes a spiritual component of what it means to reconnect and reclaim and, and regenerate 
our relationships to, with, and through land. And it also connotes the, the cultural reclamation that's deeply tied to our memories and our identities and our experiences as people that have been dispossessed and displaced from our ancestries, like physically, spiritually, and politically, and so on, right? Like just through whitewashing of the entire system that we see before us. And so, because land is this very dynamic being that is not just it doesn't exist solely to feed people, right? Like land isn't just this nutrient dense soil that exists to produce food so that humans can, can live, right? Like land is, is an integratable being just in and of herself. And there's no way <laughs> that we can sustain and thrive within this particular place on this particular land, like in this particular time, if, if we're not, aligning our vibrations with the land naturally, just generally speaking. Just kind of contending with working within the system, which in order to maybe be able to maintain and realize food sovereignty, it does entail kind of being complicit in the system and working with the idea of buying land and owning land and that way of relating to the land. So at once working with that and at once challenging it through other ways of practicing more community-centered forms of agriculture and, yeah, stewarding the land. Yeah, so it really sucks that land has been commodified into this, this thing that dictates well-being, like economic well-being, but also social well-being, political cultural well-being even, you know, depending on who you ask. And so capitalism, had racial capitalism, just to be very clear, has created this dynamic where land ownership has become a necessity so that we could just have more power. And let me be clear, that we, we should be taking, land has become this thing that we use to take back our power within this system that was never really built for us in the first place and will can never really work for us at all in every sense of the word. And so I think the work of the food sovereignty movements that are taking the world by storm right now is pushing for land ownership as a means of taking back our power that was that was stolen from us in various ways so that we can merely survive, but also continue to thrive, right? Like, so I'm thinking of the Black Panther motto, survival pending revolution. Like we, we have to, in order to build these systems that are in complete opposition to the systems that we currently exist within, we have to, at first, survive within these systems. And we're at a time in the world where we are barely surviving. That's why land ownership is a really important tactic and taking back our power, ensuring our survival so that we can get to a place where we can transcend these systems. So we, you know, this parallel of fighting the bad while we build the new, like th these have to happen simultaneously. And land ownership, because of its deep connection to well-being, has to be a strategy in that because mm -hmm. that's what capitalism and white supremacy has has built right so that's a non-negotiable strategy that we have to use just to ensure that we could eat at the very least so we can keep food on our tables and we could continue to breathe you know just said uh, using a very general metaphor like we just have to be able to breathe so that we can transform the world before us and there are some really dope strategies that use land ownership as the impetus to build something that's in complete opposition to land ownership. So, mm -hmm. for example, community land trusts, which actually started with Black rural farmers in Georgia, New Communities Inc., which is now called Resora, started the Black, the first Black or the first community land ownership in the country here on Turtle Island 
as a way to build more economic and political power for Black farmers at the time that were increasingly being displaced during the 1960s through, you know, various federal and state efforts to basically steal bland from, from Black people, right? So there's a longer story there that has a lot of literature on it if, if folks want to do some research. So uh, New Communities, Inc., starting the first community land trust in the country has been a model where we could practice what land stewardship looks like through collective land ownership, right? And so we don't, we don't want to govern and, and dictate as individuals what happens on the land, right? Like we, we, we own the land as, as collectives so that our entire community can benefit. And, and, you know, it's not just about one individual or one family. It's about the entire community flourishing through this collective ownership model that to me leads to the ecological and spiritual stewardship that comes with that collectivity, right? There's something about kinship and relationality and relationships and like ethical responsibilities that create this beautiful dynamic in stark contrast to the racialized oppression that we've been socialized within, right? And so community land trust is an example of what that looks like, right? Like when we forefront collectivity and solidarity and kinship and relationality and mutual accountability, like all of these things that capitalism and white supremacy wants to destroy and wants to like not encourage because it will render the system ineffective. So, so we actively practice these things as successful strategies in dismantling the system as we still work to survive within the that very system. Really beautiful reminder. And with everything that we've discussed, I know you've been keen on shifting away from the sort of deficit perspective of what Black agrarianism is to a more joyous, victorious, and glorious lens of what Black farming is. So what has been your motivations to support this narrative shift? And as we come to a close, what are some of your final calls to action or deeper inquiry that you'd like to leave with our listeners? I really, I can't end without mentioning the huge call to action that Sankofa means for me. Sankofa is a symbol within the Adinkra cultural system that means essentially to go back and fetch it, right? Like we draw in history and memory while looking forward. And this brings up a lot of things for me. So on one hand, the veneration of our sacred foodways is extremely important for racial healing, whole mind, body, and spirit healing. Again, dismantling these current systems and building new ones to replace them. Like all of these things come together in ways that I think lead to the veneration of our sacred foodways as a process, a sacred process of reclamation. Like, like this is the spiritual ecology of Black food, right? Like we can't talk about freedom if we're not talking about the interrelationality and and the mutual liberation that is encompassed in that through just like the, the spiritual component of the work. And... To add on to that, I'll say that healing is is a collective work. Like many Black people will say that those that are not already sold on like Black agrarian strategies to liberation or even like just food sovereignty generally as, as a tactic and building more sustainable communities and like whole freedom, mind, body, and spirit freedom for, for people at every angle of the world, that's because many Black people have a, have a deep, 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 deep trauma with the land. And I think Leah Penniman said it best. She said that we have confused what happened on the land with the land itself. And I'm just speaking within a particular vein of Blackness because that's how I identify and that's where a lot of my work resides to, to, to call in my folks 
to heal ourselves based on this deeply like internalized trauma around land. And we can't do that if we're not doing that together. So healing is a collective work. And that's why many of the groups and institutions that I'm a part of, whether it's the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network or the Black Dirt Farm Collective or the Detroit People's Food Co-op, many, many other organizations that I love dearly, like we all have this common theme of collectivity and solidarity and like using land work as an example of what it means for Black people to pull from our abundance and, and create something so drastically beautiful that that it can't be defeated. Like, and to me, that has to start on land because land is ultimately like the source of our sense of belonging. It's It stewards healing in ways that nothing else can, right? And one of my mentors, Baba Malik Akini, he says that food is the first economy of any civilization, right? And I'll extend that and say that land is has to be the basis of that process, right? And so since everybody has to eat, and everybody lives, works, plays, has some connection to land in some ways, whether it's healthy or not, we have to interrogate our relationships with land. We have to interrogate our relationships with food and use food and land in particular as the keys, like the the two keys that we use to unlock our like greater liberation to, to other avenues. And... I really have to say that. So Audre Lorde, who is a prophet and like my spiritual mentor in so many ways, who is now an ancestor, she's a black queer feminist who is now an ancestor who has really beautiful writings on so many things that I, I won't even just nail down to one topic. And she says that revolutionary change is not just fighting the good fight and I'm paraphrasing, right? So it's not just fighting the good fight, but it's, it has to be about uprooting the pieces of the oppressor that has been supplanted within, within each of us through white supremacy culture. I mean, just through like living in this society. Right. And so I think we're at a time in the world like during this critical decade where the planet is warming at alarming rates and there may not be a livable planet here even 20 years from now, just, you know, when my one-year-old is my age, there may not be a planet here, which is so heartbreaking, right? Like just, just to face that reality or that, that possibility. At this time in the world, we have to really figure out a way to create healing spaces without relying on the systems of power that reinforce the oppressive systems. Mm-hmm. And this, this has various manifestations. And I've been doing this work long enough. I mean, I would say a long time, but let me long enough to know that if we're not finding ways to work through like personality differences and find creative ways to share a power with one another, to work through conflict in transformative and restorative ways, like we we aren't going to get to where we need to be. And I've been so heartbroken being involved in various movements and having the winds truncated and just having our work diluted on various tiers because we're not healing together, right? Like we're not we're not using this work as a healing modality to heal our internalized trauma. And we're I mean, maybe some of us are, but we're not doing this work in a way that heals ourselves in, in whole ways and heals our communities as a return to that. I think we have to figure out ways to heal together without reenacting like queer queerphobia, transphobia, misogyny, anti-blackness, internalized racial capitalism, fat phobia, like all, all of these completely ostracizing mechanisms that create divisions within our movements. And 
if we're not unified and working as a healing collective that can interrogate the really like atrocious shit that we bring to the movement spaces, like reflect on how we can grow as individuals so that our communities are stronger, then I'm not, I often say, I don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to me, transformation is an inside out process. That's why movements have to also be about the self growth as well. And I don't, I don't see a lot of that. And I came to this realization through my own mistakes that I've, you know, I've showed up in really shitty ways in certain movement spaces. I've showed up in ways that subtracted from the divinity of the work. And I've learned my lessons and I'm, you know, I'm doing my due diligence to work in ways that that is more aligned with with movement building that will get us to, to our liberation, just to keep it very, very frank. Right. And not all of us are there. And if we don't find ways to heal from our internalized traumas and work through various differences that, that are based in like intrapersonal relationship building, then there is no grant that we could get that will get us to our liberation. I promise. <laughs> There's just no, and I'm speaking very directly to people that I love in movement spaces. And it's very hard to have certain conversations like this. What has been one of the most impactful books or publications that you've engaged with? Maryam Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice has been a divine reading for me for multiple reasons. In an interview that's published in the book, she talks about everything worthwhile is done with other people. And this illuminates, again, what, I, what I've been talking about previously the beauty of collectivity and cooperativism and just how we need one another to do this work. Like there's no liberation, healing, justice in any way, shape or form if we're not doing it with one another in ways that ensures that everyone is loved and respected and probably most importantly trusted. What is a motto, mantra or practice that helps you to stay grounded? A motto that helps me stay grounded is a saying that I heard from a dear agrarian sister of mine, Aaliyah Frazier, who now resides in Trinidad and leads really beautiful Black agrarian co-op work there. She says that our hands have been here before. And she has a whole story based on her grandmother that lives in Trinidad and the ancestral memory of the work for her based on her grandmother's stories and so on. But the, the, the model that we've been here before brings up for me, the, the importance of our ancestral memories in this work and that actually employing our ancestral memories is an indispensable way to achieving the wins that that we deeply seek in this work because we're not we we're not alone in this battle so if we're not employing the power of the ancestry like the people that have been doing this work even prior to us coming to the planet and, and pulling from that divinity and that like sacred power that resides in a realm that none of us could ever touch because we're in human form i mean in at, at this particular moment I think we're we're not employing 
our power in totality. Like that's a huge part of our power that we often don't tap into just, just because sometimes we can't see it or we can't touch it or we can't hear it. I mean, depending on how you conceptualize the, the, that form that the power comes within. So our ancestral memory and realizing that we've been here before and that we, we actually need, we need the spiritual beings to help us achieve the wins that we need. Thank you. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? So Mary Hooks from Black Lives Matter, Atlanta chapter says that the mandate for Black people in this time is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors, to earn the respect of future generations and to be willing to be transformed in service of the work. And I hold this statement very close to me because it inspires me every day to continue to do this work. It, it really illuminates for me the importance of why I do it. Thank you so much for that. We are coming to a close here. We will have various references from this conversation linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. But for now, Shakira, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Toni Morrison says that the function of freedom is to free someone else. So that to that note, I'll say ground your quest of freedom in the quest of someone else's freedom. This episode was brought to you by listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also really appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song featured today is Over It by Ruby Madeer. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>